Hi, Journey. How's it going? Nice to see all of you. Just a little something about us around Journey. No matter what your story is, we're for you. Around here, we're for you. We're in your corner, and Journey Church is a healing community. Journey is all about doing whatever it takes to help connect you with God, helping you find His forgiveness, find His freedom, find help that only God can give. And just please always remember that we are a church for and of very imperfect people. That's who we are around here. And we're in this series that we call Not Without You and some stuff that a guy named David Hughes and Rick Warren wrote, resource my study and my prep this week. And if you're here, maybe for the very first time, we are incredibly honored that you've chosen to be here because we're really talking about the amazing stuff that God's doing, the amazing stuff that God's asking us to join him in. And we've been for the last few weeks studying quite amazing stories from the scriptures about people fusing their faith with their finances. Because there's lots and lots of times in our lives when courage and cash are bundled right together. They are inextricably linked, aren't they? And this is one of those seasons for us around Journey Church. And so today, we're talking about the vision that God's given our church family. And what we've noticed is that God's doing something so great and so big that this building, even though we just recently built it and occupied it, it can't contain what God is doing. I talked last weekend, if you were here, about how I don't think that the 40 acres that we sit on will be able to contain all that God's doing because he's doing something so amazing, so special, so absolutely other than us. It has to be him. And part of our vision for the near-term future of Journey Church involves adding more base camp and classroom space for our children, for our adults, for our community, and those new classrooms will allow us to serve our community with the addition of a Christ-centered, world-class daycare and preschool specifically targeted to serve one of the most underserved groups in our valley, which is single parents. We believe that the near-term vision of Journey Church also includes better parking to take better care of our guests. We believe that another component of God's near-term vision for Journey also involves three soccer fields that would be gifts to the families of the Gallatin Valley. Another component of God's near-term vision for us around Journey involves being very good stewards and paying down by at least two-thirds the mortgage on this phase of our campus development. And then last, the fifth piece is that we believe God's near-term vision involves giving a percentage of our resources away to New Kingdom Ventures, church plants and so on. And we literally could not be any more excited than we are about God's vision for us as a church and all that he's asking all of us to do and be and be a part of. And I want to be very, very clear right up front that this not without you is not a building campaign. It is not a building campaign. Please do not ever call it a building campaign. Not without you is a people campaign. Every chair has a story and every story matters. Every person matters, matters to God, matters to Journey Church. We're all about our King, our Savior, His eternity-altering message, people, and God's invitation for us to be generous just as He was so generous with us. And speaking of generosity, one of the most powerful stories of generosity I've ever heard is the story of a pastor from Philadelphia who many, many years ago found a little girl outside of a Sunday school class in his church in tears. He happened to be walking down this hallway on a Sunday morning and this little girl was dressed in a disheveled, dirty little dress. She was from a very, very poor side of town and this pastor knelt down next to this sobbing little girl and said, what's wrong, dear? 
And she sobbed sort of through her tears. I I came late to church today. My parents, they don't ever come to church. I walk here all by myself. I was running late. And I was told by the teacher of the Sunday school class that there was no room for me in this class. It's just too full. There's too many kids in there. Now, this pastor, he's a very astute fella. And so he looked inside through the glass in the window. And sure enough, he was, this little girl was telling the truth. There were kids just about hanging from the rafters, just about hanging out the windows in this tiny, teeny little tiny Sunday school room. This pastor made a quick assessment, went in, asked the Sunday school teacher, look, is there any way that today you could make a little room for this little girl to join your class today? And the teacher shrugged her shoulders and said, well, sure, we'll figure something out, have her come right in. And so they made room, they shoehorned her in, and that little girl, she continued to come to that church, and over time, that pastor built a relationship with that little girl that was something very, very special. Now, fast forward two years, 24 months from that incident outside the Sunday school classroom. One day, that same pastor was sitting in his study, and he received word that that precious little girl had passed away overnight. It was a very, very tough time in the United States. It was a very, very challenging economic climate. And sadly, tragic stories just like that one were not at all uncommon. Right away, the pastor got up from his study, left, and went to the little girl's family apartment, this dingy little apartment located in a slum to try to sort of scoop up this poor parents, this little girl, and bring some sort of comfort to these heartbroken people. When he got there, the little girl's body was still there in the apartment. After a little while, it came time for them to remove the girl's body. And when they moved her, they discovered underneath her body this tiny, tattered red purse. The purse looked like it had been rummaged from a trash heap somewhere. It probably had been. This girl didn't have the resources to have bought this herself. And the little girl's parents, they very timidly opened the purse with the pastor looking on. And inside of that tattered little red purse was 57 cents and a note handwritten by the little girl, to help build a new church building so that all the kids can go to Sunday school. Whoa. Now the parents handed the money and that note and the purse to the pastor. pastor left. And as you might imagine, that whole ordeal piled that pastor up. He was a wreck. Here's this little precious girl, She dies, she leaves this note with 57 cents talking about building more space so no kid has to go through what this little girl went through and they told her there wasn't room for her in Sunday school class. And that pastor took that as a call from God. He went to the rest of his church leaders and he said, look, we have got to build. I know it's a tough time, our church is not a wealthy church, but we have to build more room. I mean, look, here's 57 cents. He said, God is speaking very, very clearly, isn't he? And that church began to pray, and they began to pray, and they began to pray, and what do you know? They began to give and give and give, and first it was thousands, and then it was ten thousands, and pretty soon they raised about $200,000. It was an immense sum of money in the early 1900s, and the church started thinking, well, is it possible that we might be able to build? Maybe. Our church is growing quite rapidly. What about property? Where are we going to find land that we could even afford and then still have money left over to build a building. The church was contacted one day by a real estate broker who said to the church leaders, I know of a piece of property that would be perfect for you. It's beautiful. You guys could build anything there that you ever wanted to build. And as this real estate broker talked more about it, the pastor was like, oh yeah, I know know that piece of property. And the pastor said, that would be a fantastic piece of property. It's more than enough. It's more than enough for our needs, our dreams, our vision. 
But honestly, he said to the real estate broker, there's no way that we could ever afford that. Even if we could give you all the money that we had, we wouldn't have any money left over to build anything on it. There's no way we could afford that big of a piece of property. The real estate broker said, I assure you, you can afford it. The owner of the property, the broker said, who wishes to remain completely anonymous, says the price for your church to buy that land is 57 cents. 57 cents. Now see, the Philadelphia newspaper had picked up on the story of that little girl and this church, story about this little girl's generosity. And so today, if you go to Philadelphia and you go to a church called the Temple Baptist Church and you sit in their 3,300-seat auditorium, if you go to Temple Baptist Hospital, if you go to Temple University, it's all on that property. All on that property. Purchased for 57 cents. That is the power of generosity, isn't it? And by the way, if you're wondering if that's one of those urban legend things, one of those internet stories that float around, make you feel all warm and fuzzy, but then aren't true, all inspired, but aren't true, that one's true. Absolutely true. It's a fact. God can do amazing things through generosity. At the end of this time of worship today, We're going to have a chance to do just what we've been talking together about for these past weeks, to fuse up our faith and our finances and be generous and be part of a miracle and be part of God's vision fulfillment through all of us. And I have no doubt that it's going to be an amazing time. It was last night and I anticipate it being the same today. Now, if you're here and this is your first or second time someone brought you today or something and you're going, oh boy, what have I got myself into today? This is going to be weird. This is going to be awkward. Can I just ask you to hang with us, please? Would you just hang with us here today? I do not want this to be weird or awkward for anyone. There's going to be a time in a little bit where we invite people to make their commitment to the Not Without You initiative and to the Lord, but we're not going to pass a bag. We're not going to dismiss you row by row. We're going to do it just like we take communion, which we just did last weekend if you happen to be here last weekend. You can see there's these four stations set up around the room, and it's just going to be a real organic, spirit-led thing. People can get up and move to those when and if they choose, when and if they're ready. And so if you're here today and you're a guest, I just ask you to please relax, settle in. We do not want anything from you. We're not going to ask you for any money, any commitment. Please just observe. Please just watch the community of Journey Church in a little bit, worship through their generosity, and watch what God's going to do all around us today. If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to open it to 1 Kings 17, if you would. Maybe you borrowed a Bible on the way in. That's cool. Maybe you brought your own. Maybe you want to follow along on the screens. You're welcome to do any and all of those. 1 Kings 17, I want to unpack this narrative with you and wrap it up with some points of application in the end, because really this is quite a remarkable story about God resourcing people, God resourcing people supernaturally even, God providing for their needs, and the whole narrative that we're going to unpack, it has an economic context to it, because it's really so much of the buzz all around us, isn't it? Kind of like last weekend when we talked about Haggai, again this weekend we're going to talk about Elijah, and he has a negative economic environment unfolding right in front of him, right in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 17. And verse 1 is kind of a setup verse. It sets the spiritual and economic context of just what's unfolding, 1 Kings 17, 1. Now Elijah, who was from Tishba in Gilead, told King Ahab, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. 
So here's Elijah. He's the good guy in the story. He's the hero. He's the prophet of God. He's God's man, and he's a Tishbite from Tishba in Gilead. There's a mouthful for you. And Elijah says to Ahab, uh, now question, do you think Ahab is a good guy or a bad guy? Huh? Bad guy. I heard one smart person out there. The rest of you are still asleep. Wake up. Ahab is a bad guy. You're right. He's the king of Israel. He's the most wicked king to ever sit on the throne of Israel. Ahab, for lack of a better word, is a real stinker. I don't know how else to say it. He's a pagan. He's an idol worshiper, and I'll tell you more about that in just a minute. Now, why is Ahab so bad, you ask? He's bad because he forgot to heed the words of his dad, don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls who do. He forgot the words of his father. Ahab's a stinker, at least in part, because he married a very bad girl. Anyone know who Ahab's very wicked wife is? Jezebel. And just so you know, if anyone ever calls you ladies a Jezebel, it is not a compliment. There's another name you'll never name your future daughter, Jezebel. You won't ever, and it's an interesting deal. Uh, Calling someone Jezebel, it comes right out of the scripture, right? Speaking of the Bible affecting contemporary society, that comes right out of the text. Ahab's wife, Jezebel, and just so you know, she's not a Jew. She's from a neighboring nation, and she manages to persuade her husband, therefore, the entire nation of Israel, to turn from the worship of Yahweh, the one true living God, and worship idols and pagan deities, and to actually sacrifice their children. Whoa. It's a horrible and very heinous time in the history of Israel, and God is ticked off. He's had it. He's had it up to here, and he's going to judge Israel, and his judgment is going to be an economic judgment an economic judgment. So here's Elijah. One day he shows up on King Ahab's doorstep and he speaks these words to the evil stinker king, Ahab. And he says, now just so you know, just so we're real clear here, Ahab, I'm just the messenger boy. These aren't actually my words. I'm simply the spokesperson for the king. I'm sort of the letter carrier for God. And he says, look, there's not gonna be any rain. There's not gonna be any dew in the next few years except if I say so. Now, you know what that means. I mean, this is Israel, right? It's a semi-arid environment. In that kind of a climate, to go through any prolonged season without dew or rain, it did not equal economic recession. It did not equal economic depression. It meant entire economic collapse. The floor falls out. Think Ethiopia in the 1980s. You remember those. If there's not sufficient rain, what happens? People starve, and they starve to death. It, is, it means incredible economic hardship. And there's a couple of other realities that are in view here as well. This assertion that Elijah makes that Yahweh God is going to cause this drought, it's actually a deliberate refutation of the false god Baal, who is the primary god whom Ahab worships. See, Baal is supposedly a fertility god, god little g, of course. He's also supposedly a rain-making god. But Elijah's words to King Ahab challenge that claim by insisting that both rain and drought are completely and totally and utterly in the governance of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And Baal has nothing whatsoever to do with them. So that means 
that Elijah's announcement proclamation of drought is a very deeply theological affirmation that Baal, the false god Baal, is utterly impotent and that Ahab, by worshiping this impotent little g-god, is completely out to lunch. It's a powerful proclamation that Elijah's making here. The second thing that's in view, and this one is just as big as the first one, is that in ancient times, it was the work of the king to assure fertility and rain. That's why Ahab was bowing down to this false god Baal, because he was doing whatever he could to assure fertility and rain for the nation of Israel. Royal responsibility for rain, it was not unlike contemporary presidential responsibility for the what? The economy. For the economy. When the economy is in the tank, who do we blame? The president, as if he's the only guy pulling those strings, right? When the economy's good, who do we cheer? As if he should deserve all the credit. The president, right? The measure of an effective king in ancient Israel was sufficient rain that produces sufficient crops. Via Elijah's very prophetic word, the capacity to administer rain and therefore administer life was stripped. From King Ahab, which means that King Ahab was made politically irrelevant, devoid of any critical function for society. He may not, may as well not even have been sitting on the throne. Which raises the question: if things are going to get this bad for Israel, how in the world is God going to resource Elijah? How in the world is God going to resource his man during this time of economic difficulty? 1 Kings 17, starting in verse 2. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go to the east, hide, because you've just said something that's going to be very, very upsetting to King Ahab. He's not going to be your fan. You're not going to be on his Christmas card list anymore. And hide by Kareth Brook, near where it enters the Jordan River. Drink from the brook and eat what the ravens bring you, for I have commanded them to bring you food. That's amazing. That is so cool. And look at the next verses, five to six. So Elijah did as the Lord told him. He camped beside Kareth Brook, east of the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat each morning and evening, and he drank from the brook. God serves up Elijah's meals via raven UPS. Here they come. Every morning and every evening, the ravens bring Elijah bread and meat. Now, in the Bible, bread is symbolic of God meeting our most basic needs, which God promises to do for his people, our most basic needs. But get this, God's not just giving Elijah bread, is he? He's giving him both bread and meat. The ravens are bringing Elijah cold cuts, which indicates that God's going way over the top to care for his servant Elijah. The meat is like a total luxury. Fly-in, filet mignon is coming to the prophet twice a day. God's taking care of his man, isn't he? During the season of drought. How long is the season? We don't get it from 1 Kings 17, but if you go to James 5.17, you don't have to flip there, just look on the screens. Elijah, it says, James 5.17, was as human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for how long? Three and a half years. That's a long time. It didn't rain or dew in Israel for three and a half years. Now, if that's how long Elijah was at the Cherith deal, it means that the ravens served him over 2,000 meals. That's amazing. And drop down to verse 7 because what happens next is quite profound. But after a while, uh oh, the brook dried up, for there was no rainfall anywhere 
in the land. So there's Elijah, he's drinking from the brook, just like God told him to do. The ravens are bringing him food. All of a sudden, there's no water in the brook. The ravens stop showing up. And what in the world does that mean? Keep that verse up, thank you. It's not a stretch here to say that Elijah's income stream has dried up. His income stream dries up. He's been resourced by this brook. He's been resourced by the ravens. And all of a sudden, the birds in the brook, they're gone. They dry up. Now, notice exactly what happens. Elijah freaks out, doesn't he? He panics. He gets all afraid. He runs back to King Ahab and he begs for a job. He apologizes to the king for saying such harsh things. Uh Uh-uh. That is not at all what I'm messing with you. That is not at all. Not even close to what happens. Elijah does not freak out. He doesn't panic. He says, you know what, God? You can choose to resource me any way you want to. And that's exactly what happens. God changes the way that Elijah is resourced. Now, this is our first application for today. Over the next few years, I trust that God is going to resource all of us, and he might change the way that he resources you. He might change it. You might well be in a business right now that is very, very challenging. The economy might be affecting your market and maybe what you've been doing for a while all of a sudden isn't working anymore, but here's what we do. We trust God, don't we? We trust God. He's promised to take care of us. And so he's gonna change the way that he resources his guy, Elijah, in the middle of a complete and total economic collapse And verses 8 and 9, then the Lord, here's what's next. Then the Lord said to Elijah, go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. Now this is crazy. This is crazy. We've seen some sort of crazy stuff in Elijah's saga, but this beats all the craziness so far. And here's part of what makes this so crazy. God tells Elijah to go to Sidon, go to Zarephath near Sidon. Now, some of you are going, so what's the crazy big deal about that? Well, Sidon, just so you know, is way, way, way outside of the Bible belt. Way outside of the Bible belt. Elijah, he's grown up in Israel, he's an Israelite, he's always lived in the context of God's people, and now God says, the way I'm going to supply you is you're going to leave the Bible Belt, and you're going to go over to Sidon, way, way, way to the east, and do you know who's from Sidon? Anyone know who's from Sidon? Jezebel is from Sidon. She's from Sidon, the place that God tells Elijah to go. And Jezebel's incredibly wicked father, where do you think, by the way, that Jezebel learned her wickedness? She learned it from Big Daddy. And Jezebel's father, he's the king of Sidon. And Elijah's going, there is no way that anything good is going to come from me going to Sidon. It is an entirely wicked place. Nothing, Nothing good can come from this. But God calls him there. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but look at verse 10. Look what Elijah does. So he went to Zarephath. He goes. He says, this is crazy. I don't really like the feel of this, but I'm going. And as he arrived at the gate of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, would you please bring me a little water in a cup? God gives Elijah a word, and he obeys it. And that's exactly how we've been talking about our commitments to the Not Without You initiative. Would you just pray, and then would you just do what God asks, invites, challenges you to do? There's not been any pressure for anyone ever to take out their checkbook, and so 
We said simply pray, please, and then do what God's been asking you to do. And for your family, what God asks you to do probably will not make a lot of sense. But what did Elijah do? He obeyed God and he went. And what do you know? There was a widow and she's going to take care of him. And God's ways, they're always quite a ride. They're always quite an adventure, aren't they? 1 Kings 17, 11, and 12, as she, the widow, was going to get the cup of water, he called to her, bring me a bite of bread too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God, I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. I have only a handful of flour left in a jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and my son and I will die. You talk about a depressing passage. Like, whoa, that is as low as it gets. Elijah goes where God tells him to go. He comes to the town gate. There's this widow gathering sticks. Elijah says, would you get me a cup of water so that I might have a drink? And the widow gets to getting the cup of water for Elijah. And then he's got a follow-up request for her. By the way, would you get me a little sandwich while you're up too? A little bread, please. And ladies, wives especially. That's just like a guy, isn't it? It's just like a guy. She's running off to get him a drink and he hollers out, hey, while you're up, while you're in the kitchen, how about a little sandwich or something as long as you're there already? Now the widow's response to this is quite interesting. She says, I swear by the Lord, what? Your God. You catch that? The Lord, your God, what's that mean? It means that she is not yet a follower of God. She's not in following God yet. He's not my God, he's your God. And I swear by the Lord your God, I haven't got a single piece of bread in the whole house. And it's worse than that. I only have a handful of flour, a little bit of cooking oil down in the bottom of the jar, sort of the residue down there. I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal and then my son and I are gonna eat it and die. And could we talk for just a moment about the psychology of a tough economy? Because here's what I notice is whenever things get a little shaky, economically speaking, our human tendency is always toward panic, isn't it? We tend to exaggerate just a little bit. Now, did you see what the price of oil did this week on signs of deeper unrest in the Middle East? That's what you call panic. Panic. It's exaggeration. This widow was doing the exact same thing. Now, Don't get me wrong, things are tough for this woman. But she was not about to die. She's strong. She's strong enough to be out gathering sticks. She still has some resources, but we, just like her, get a little nervous, don't we? We start to panic. We start to freak out. We go, oh my goodness, what in the world? The sky is falling. What's going to happen? Which is why the words of the Lord that Elijah says to her are so pivotal. The words that come next in verse 13. But Elijah said to her, what? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you've said, but make a little bread for me first. Then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son. And our hearts need to hear those words, don't they? Don't be afraid. Because honestly, this weekend, this is not without you initiative. It's not about our cash. It's all about our courage, frankly. It's all about our courage. The story of Elijah and this widow, it's not so much about her bread. It is, however, all about her bravery all about her bravery. Do we have the courage to do what God's asking us to do? 
If you and your spouse or you and your family or you and yourself have spent the last three weeks earnestly praying, earnestly seeking God, I believe that God's probably shown you some numbers. He's probably calling you to a level of generosity and the level of generosity that God's probably calling you to has freaked you out just a little bit. You want to be generous. And you're going, God, I want to do something. God, you know I love you. God, you know I love this church. You know, God, I'm on board with this vision. But God, frankly, what you're inviting me to, it's a little scary. And I want to echo just what God said through his man, Elijah, a long, long time ago. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Our God does not traffic in fear. Fear is straight from the pit of hell. Fear is from the enemy. Do not be afraid of what God has called you to do when it comes to the not without you initiative or when it calls to what God is asking you to, when it comes to what God is calling you to do vocationally or when it comes to what God is asking you to do with your summer or when it comes to what God is asking you to do and say with your neighbor about him. God loves to say, don't be afraid. I actually ran across a stat this past week Did you know that God offers some variation of the phrase, do not be afraid, 365 times in the Bible? 365 times in the Bible. Isn't that fantastic? Our God is the God of do not be afraid. Do not be afraid for every single day of the year. That's cool. And if you look at what Elijah says, he says, don't be afraid. And then he actually couples it with his next statement. Don't be afraid, go and do. Don't be afraid, go and do. Fearlessly go and do what God has laid on your heart. And so Journey Church, today we're inviting all of us to be the church of the unafraid. To be the church of the unafraid, let's become a church of fearless people who rigorously trust God. As a matter of fact, I want to change the metaphor from last weekend. Do you remember this chair from last weekend? What was this chair? Man, you are sleepy. Courage chair, that's exactly right. This is the courage chair. And this is a cool chair, but it's actually from my office. So I'm going to take it away and I'm going to replace it. The different chair. I'm going to come back. Don't you worry. I'm going to replace it with this chair. This journey is the new courage chair. Look familiar? It should because you're sitting in one right now unless you're not sitting in one, in which case you'd be standing. That's the new courage chair. That's our courage chair. If you missed last weekend's message, I'd invite you to get that. You can get the podcast or the CDs out in the lobby and listen in. But the white chair isn't the courage chair anymore. It's actually this chair. Because we, Journey, are going to be people of courage. And we're sitting in the courage chair, Journey, because God has transformed us. God has affected us dramatically and we're not the same people that we used to be. And God has changed so many people who have sat in these very brown chairs, even in just the short window of six months that we've been using them. And you go, well, how in the world did that happen? 
It happened because last year, just last year, a bunch of people around Journey got real courageous, they got real fearless, and they chose to step out in faith, chose to trust God, and we built this building, and we put a bunch of brown chairs in this room, about 800 of them, as a matter of fact, and you've done such an incredible job of inviting your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers and your classmates and your family members to come sit in these chairs, and what do you know? They've heard the life-changing gospel of Jesus Christ. They've gotten up from the collapsible chair, the chair that's made of their own success, the chair that's made of their own doing, and they've changed chairs to the courage chair, and they've chosen to make very courageous, God-honoring decisions with their whole lives. This is the courage chair. Journey Church, don't be afraid. 1 Kings 17, 14. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. Verse 15. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her son continued to eat for many days. And that is one of the greatest obedience verses in the whole scripture. She just did what Elijah said. And that's been our message through the whole not without you journey. You go to God and you pray and whatever God shows you to do, you just do it. You just do what God says. And what happens? God provides food for the widow, for Elijah, for her family for a long, long time. And here's the message for us today, Journey. God will meet our needs if we'll just honor him. He'll meet our needs if we'll just honor him. And I have a couple more points of application for you. The first one is this one. Call it the God first factor could write that down the God first factor comes from verse 13 but Elijah said to her don't be afraid go ahead and do just what you've said but make a little bread for me first then use what's left to prepare a meal for yourself and your son and there's one word that's absolutely always pivotal to God showing up in our lives in miraculous ways and it is the word first first the God first factor but make a little bread for me first, Elijah says. Now, does that strike anyone but me as a little strange? You might even call it a wee bit obnoxious. Here's Elijah, he's God's man, and he's saying, now, lady, I get that I just met you. I get that things are real tight right now. I get that your stores are quite limited. I know that you only have a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil, so go make the bread, but first give some to me. Almost greedy maybe even selfish. I'm God's man, after all. Then take care of you and your family. That feels way out of whack to us, doesn't it? It's just the opposite of the way that most of us process. We do it this way. We go, okay, God, you know full well that I love you. You know full well, God, that I want to serve you. You know that I want to be all in on what you're doing here on the planet. And so here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm going to meet my family's needs. I'm going to meet my family's obligations. And honestly, God, there's a few things that I really want. They're not needs, but there's some real cool things that I'd really like to have, like an iPhone. But there's some, you know, got to have that. I saw some elbow nudges on the iPhone comment. Right? And so, God, you let me take care of all those things first. And then, God, if there's anything left over after all of that, then I'll take care of your work. Then I'll be in on your invitation to be generous. That's how most of us process. But this verse makes it very, very clear that there is a priority principle inside of God's economy. He comes first. 
It is the God first factor. And there are no miracles unless and until we put God first. And this is absolutely remarkable. Here's this woman from Sidon. She grows up in a context of idols and pagan worship. She recognizes something so incredibly authentic in the man of God that she says, you know, this is absolutely insane. It makes no sense whatsoever, but you're telling me that I should put your God first and you know what? Well, I'm just gonna do that. I'm just gonna do that. And then everything else. And by the way, the God first factor, it isn't just financially speaking. It's every sphere of life. Matthew 6, 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. John three thirty, He must become greater and greater and I must become less and less. God, you get bigger. God, you take priority. And then God, I'm lining up right after you. God first. It's counterintuitive, absolutely, but it's what the Bible says. It's what the Bible says. And not without you is our prime opportunity to show God that we understand what it means to put him first, especially when resources are limited because, well, then it takes more courage, doesn't it? And then the second thing and the last thing today is the widow's giving wasn't big, but it was her best. It wasn't big, but it was her best. All it was was a piece of bread. A piece of bread. The little girl whose story I told in the very beginning, she gave 57 cents, which to us doesn't sound like much money, but it was quite a sum to a little girl back in the day, and it was her best for God. Last weekend, if you were here, you might remember we talked just a little bit about the woman who gave two pennies last weekend. It wasn't a big amount, but it was everything that she had, and it was radically courageous. Give God, your best. And journey, I got to tell you, it always takes our best. To fulfill God's redemptive potential for our church, it always takes our best. Week in and week out, it takes our best. But now, more than ever, as we are trying to knock down what we think God is asking us to knock down around here, we must give our best. And it's going to take every last one of us giving our best. Bringing God a sorry second isn't going to cut it. God says, courageously bring me your best. And it's not time yet for us to lay down our commitments. But there might be some of you who, as we pray before we lay those commitments down, here's a bold statement for a pastor to say, you might need to change your number. You might need to change your number. Some of you might, right here, right now, need to have a little quick conference with your spouse right there while you're sitting in the courage chairs and say, you know, where we landed, honestly, that's not our best. For the dream and for the vision of not without you to unfold journey, it's gonna take our best. If just a few of us around here get excited and give God our best, it's not gonna happen. Even if the majority of us get impassioned and choose to give God our best, it's not gonna happen. And if you read Acts chapter 2, and you read about the dream of God's kingdom coming to earth, unfolding through the very first church, you read that they were all in. It took every single one of them, and it's going to take every single one of us journey. Not without you. Not without any of you. 
It's going to take the traction of our entire church, whether you're a member or not, whether you attend on a regular basis or not. Maybe you just feel invested in the life of Journey. Somehow, maybe Journey's been a blessing to you. It's going to take all of us doing our best and putting God first. It can happen, but it can't happen without you. Have you ever watched a tug of war between three or four really, really big, strong guys, guys kind of like my brother-in-law, Derek, he's a trainer over at the Ridge, and he works around here too, and if you've ever seen him, he's a big, strong guy. I don't want to fight him. Have you ever seen a tug of war between guys like Derek and like a dozen kids, you know, kind of little kids? Who wins that battle every time? The kids do. The little kids, and it doesn't make any sense. And you ask the question, well, why do the little kids win? It's more feet on the floor, more hands on the rope. And so, Journey, we need all of our hands and all of our feet and all of our hearts and all of our lives on the rope. And if they are, the vision of not without you will happen. It will become reality. And now, we've talked about some crazy stuff from the Elijah text, but I want to show you one more. Verse 9, who did God pick out to resource his man? Go and live in the village of Zarephath near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a what? A widow there to feed you. Elijah, you go to Sidon. I have a king there. I have a nobleman there. I have a rich merchant there. And Elijah, I'm sending you to the king or the nobleman or to the rich merchant because, you know, guys like that, they always have piles of cash laying around even during economic difficulties. Huh? uh That is not what happened. God sent his man, his servant, to a widow. And Journey, the economy's in a weird place, and here's the deal. We do not have a lot of kings in our congregation. We do not have a lot of gazillionaires. I don't even know if we have any gazillionaires in our congregation. We have widows in our church. We have normal people in our, whatever normal is. We have people, people under great financial pressure in our church. And I've just gotten a real peace from the Lord over the past few weeks. Like, you know, it's just all of us doing our best. Courageously doing our best. And that's kind of it. All of us doing our best. And by the way, where better could you invest your money than in the kingdom of God? You can go ahead and put it in the stock market, sure. But how's that working? Go ahead and leave it in your mutual fund, but how's the prosperity over there in the mutual fund side of things? Even 11%, they tell me, 11% of America's banks are a little sketch right now. But if God leads you to invest your resources in the life and community of Journey Church, here's what will happen. We'll build those classrooms, and we'll open that preschool, and we'll build those soccer fields, and we will pay down that mortgage We'll add those parking spaces and pretty soon we'll have to buy more brown chairs and we'll see more people showing up around here on the weekends and all week long and hearing the gospel and you'll continue to do the fantastic job that you do of inviting people to come with you and there's just something so incredibly catalytic and so powerful about the gospel that people walk in these doors all messed up and jacked up, all broken, and they hear about the healer, and they hear about his freedom, and they hear about his forgiveness, and they hear about the spiritual emancipation of Jesus Christ, and they hear about salvation. And they'll get up out of the collapsible chair, the chair of their own making, and they'll take a seat right here in the courageous chair. And life will not ever be the same 
for them. That's what'll happen. That's exactly what'll happen if God leads you to invest in the not without you dream, the not without you vision. Because today is all about investing in the kingdom of God. And I promise that whatever you invest in the kingdom of God, it is entirely and totally secure. Because Jesus says the only place to invest things securely is to put your treasure in heaven. Send it on ahead. Put your treasure in heaven because no thieves break in and steal in heaven and no rust destroys in heaven and there are no moths chewing through stuff in heaven. There's no declining stock markets or failing banks in heaven. Whatever we invest in souls, we will see the return on one day in heaven. And Journey Church, we're a community of messed up, imperfect people that includes me. And God's calling us to his vision, to his dream, to the reality of his kingdom coming to earth just as it is in heaven. And we started this church five and a half years ago now. And you've heard me say previously that it has been one of the great delights of my life to get to be one of the shepherds around here and to get to lead and love every single one of you. And I just have to say from the bottom of my heart that February 2011 has been the most incredible God season that we've ever known as a church. And you've been absolutely amazing and you've been such a delight. And I know that this has been incredibly challenging because it is a very weird time out there right now. But God has grown our faith. He is growing our faith. He's touching all of us. And what do you know? We're stepping out and we're trusting him. And I believe with all of me that this is just the beginning of what he's going to do in our lives and in our church and in our community and in our valley and, Lord willing, beyond our valley. Would you take your stuff and set it aside, please? And I just invite you to get quiet before the Lord. Just close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. And maybe you're a person who's here today while you're still praying. And you're someone who doesn't yet have a personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. And you know that you're sitting in the collapsible chair right now. You're going through life all on your own, a little shaky, challenged. Today's your day to change chairs. And if that's you, you change chairs by confessing to God. God, I recognize I'm a sinner. My life, God, has been going away from you. I need you, God, to please forgive me for all my sin. And God, I want to know you more than I want anything else. Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, change me. And if that's the prayer of your heart today, if you're saying, yes, God, I'm changing chairs, I'm moving to the courage chair, I want to experience the love of God firsthand. God, I want to turn back to you the way life was meant to be lived. God, I want you to forgive me for my sin. Will you make me, please, brand new? I'm surrendering everything to you, God. I'm not trusting in myself. I'm not trusting in anything else anymore. Jesus, I'm trusting in you alone. I'm trusting in your salvation. I'm giving my life completely and totally and utterly to you. Boss, God. 
that's your prayer today, would you just lift your hands real high right now, real brave-like, real bold-like. You can do that now. Just say, yep, that's me today. Yeah, you in the back, yes, yes. God, for the one who right here, right now, moved to the courage chair, we say thank you. And God, we say that we're celebrating with you, with the angels in heaven right now. For the one who has come to faith in you today, God. Thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all that you're doing. We ask, God, that we would be your faithful servants, your faithful partners, that we would be courageous with everything in our lives, God. The band's going to lead us in the singing of this song, All Creatures of Our God and King, and we'll sing that song, and then I'm going to come back up, and I'll give a bit of instruction for our time of commitment today. pocket of the chair in front of you, there's a commitment card and an envelope if you didn't bring yours with you, and it's real self-explanatory. If you're giving some sort of asset, you can tell us about that. If you're making a three-year pledge, you can tell us about that. And uh, Not Without You is such a big deal that I'm actually going to ask every single family that's here who wants to, to make a commitment using this commitment card, even if you're taking a pass on the financial piece of this. Will you commit to pray? for the next three years, that we would become the church, that we would continue to become the church that God wants us to become. That is a big commitment. It's significant. Or if the Lord leads you, you can tell us that you're doing both. You're praying and making a financial commitment. If you're prepared to make your pledge today, if you're not prepared to make your pledge today, you can do it in the offering bags next weekend. You can drop it in the mail to us. The address is on the envelope. You just fill it out and send it in. You can take this week and you can pray and you can do whatever God lays on your heart. No pressure. No pressure whatsoever except to pray. The band is going to crank back up. They're going to lead us in worship through music. Uh, and you can, as you're ready, as the Lord leads, move out to those four stations, one of the four stations, and make your commitment to God as you're ready to. Let's worship him in that way.